Spencer was cruising around the internet the other day. I saw a little piece of news about one of our sponsors, Strava. Strava has now been around for seven years. Happy birthday, Strava. Do you remember what your riding life was like pre-Strava? It's hard to remember. I do remember back in high school, I had those big calendars that you would put on your desk okay. and I would like write yeah. my hours on each day of the calendar and tally them up at the end of the week and that's right. yeah I was a nerd but uh Strava's taken that out of my life much easier and I don't have to store those bulky desktop calendars somewhere in my house yeah. anymore thank god Strava has made your bulky calendars obsolete yeah. uh well we love Strava for a variety of different reasons and right now we uh we're really liking them because of this Strava Summit membership because they have this training pack which can really help you improve your training goals. I see it as the in-between like paying a bunch of money for a coach but then still wanting to be serious about your training. Spencer, what does this training pack have for the good listeners? Yeah, it's. I think you're totally right. It gives you a little bit of guidance, but it's not too much of a, too much of a big investment. It's easy to get into. It gives you some training plans that help you target your different goals, help you chase those segments, chase those KOMs you love to do. It gives you the, a lot of feedback on, on your performance throughout the year as you, as you ride and train and, and have your races throughout the year. So now, listeners, right now... We have a great deal for you. If you want a Summit membership, which could include that training pack, yeah. uh, you go to strava.com slash VeloNews, put in the coupon code VeloNews, all lowercase, you get the first month free. There you go. Go chase those KOMs, people. All right. Let's get on with the show. Uh, we are back. We are back with the VeloNews podcast. Fred Dreyer here. Just Spencer Paulison with me. No Dane, he's off at Rally's team camp. Our three-legged stool is going to tip over. I know. Oh, sorry, Dane. We, we, do we have anyone here to like, you know, be in spirit for Dane? Uh, we have a lot of busted IT equipment over in this corner. We got some old hard drives, yeah. um, some CD-ROMs. No, Those are nice. Doesn't do it. What's well, a shame that Dane isn't here because uh, just a couple minutes ago, I rewatched this scintillating victory video uh, from the stage one of the Tour Down Under of Elia Viviani just pulling mad moves in this finale to win the opening stage. Spencer, he's like seven riders back. I'd say almost 10. He's boxed in, yet somehow he goes with a YOLO move to to come away with the win. This I'm saying this is like in Talladega Nights, or not Talladega Nights, in Days of Thunder, in Days of Thunder, when when, uh, Colt Trickle just just punches it to go through the cloud of smoke uh-huh. and hopes that it'll open up for him. Sure enough, it does. Viviani sprinting up that left barrier, and he's just hoping that Heinrich Hausler moves just slightly to the right, and he does. And Viviani elbows his way in, comes around. Max Walshide wins that first sprint. Dane Cash, a noted Elia Viviani fan, I'm sure, was just screaming at his television in joy when he saw that win in stage one. Wait, so in your uh, Days of Thunder reference, then it would be Peter Sagan and uh, yeah, the uh, who's that? Colbrelli? No, who's the Bayron guy there? Oh, that's uh, Heinrich Hauser. And Heine, yeah, House. yeah, he's the one who got a little elbow. They are the proverbial Excuse clouds me? of smoke. Yeah, well, uh, Sagan was a little out of the uh, Heinrich Hauser more so, but yeah. Well, uh, the Tour Down Under started today. That is uh, Tuesday. Although, crikey. Well, I don't know what day. It was oh. a different day in Australia when I, it started. Yeah. I, the only thing that keeps me functioning is Apple's clock 
app uh-huh. on, on the iPhone where you have the world clock and you just I constantly check that to figure out what time it is in Australia. It bends my mind. It's so confusing. Well, World Tour Racing has started and uh, a week from now, I think, on the Velo News podcast, this coming week, we'll break down all the action. Um, what, what do you have your eyes on? Oh, for the overall season? There's a lot of great storylines going on. No, I mean for Tour Down Under. Oh, for Tour Down Under. Well, got to be specific. I think it's going to be an exciting one because you've got a lot of the a lot of the top GC riders maybe aren't there, but you've got you've got Richie Port debuting with Trek Segafredo. It'll be interesting to see how motivated he is. I got to think he's going to really gun for a win in this overall. Uh, Daryl Impey hoping to defend his title. I guess there's never actually been a back-to-back winner of Tour Down Under. I heard uh, Phil Liggett say that on the call the other day, and I was really surprised by that, but it could be an interesting showdown between Impey and Port, and then there's some dark horses in the mix, too, that are pretty solid climbers, and we all know it'll probably come down to some of those hilly final stages over the weekend. Well, on this week's episode of the Vel News Podcast, We're not going to talk too much about the Tour Down Under, although coming up later in the show, we do have an interview with one of the favorites to win the Tour Down Under, and uh, that is Canadian Mike Woods. Yeah, sorry. Andrew Hood is over in Australia right now. He caught up with Mike Woods. But before we get to Woods, we're going to blitz through some news pieces. We don't have Dane here to offer his hottest takes, so we're probably going to be going through these pretty quick. Uh, First on the list of news from this past week, Spencer, was a report in La Gazzetta della Sport that says Geraint Thomas, oh, the reigning Tour de France champion, may choose to race the Giro d'Italia instead of the Tour. What do, what do we make of this? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe he went on vacation with Chris Froome during the offseason and Froome brought a nice little envelope with him and mm. sort of slid it across the table in a s- very subtle manner and was like, Garrett, oh, lad, uh, don't you think uh, don't you think Italy would be quite splendid in May? Mm. And Garrett Thomas gives him the nod, and it's, uh, and it's on to the Giro, and then that frees up Chris Froome to be the sole leader of Team Sky for the Tour de France. Allegedly, we're not sure yet. This is all kind of speculative. You know, Gazetta likes to get a little speculative sometimes with these and, stories. And so in, in your story, the, uh, the envelope would have, what, like $7 in it or something <laughs> like that. It's like, hey, my buddy Abraham Lincoln— <laughs> thinks you should raise the Giro this year. Well, they're British, so they're not using American currency. Uh, although the dollar is really strong against the Euro right now, I'd, I'd say maybe it's some some coupons, uh, maybe a free, uh, a free pint down at the pub. We all know that Garrett Thomas likes to have a few beers once and again. Here's what you struck me about this. Yes, is that this is the potential, the parting of the waves for Chris Froome to have a clear shot at winning the tour. It kind of bumps me out, though, because, A, I was really excited. I am really excited to see Igan Barnal, um, Sky's up-and-coming Colombian talent, uh, go head-to-head with some of these great GC riders at the Giro. And I, and I really hope that he has um, unfettered team leadership at the Giro. Uh, second of all, I just think that I'd love to see Garen Thomas and Chris Froome try to work out the um, dual leadership, knowing that both men are firing on all, on all cylinders. You know, this past year at the Tour, it was, you know, Chris Froome had the bad luck in the opening week of the Tour, but then come week three, it was just very evident that Garen Thomas was a little bit stronger. But I would love to see the drama and oh, just sort of the leadership wrangling of what do you do when you have two guys who are who are really strong and, and gunning, gunning for pole position? I definitely agree with you on that. And frankly, I think, 
as far as Team Sky is concerned, it would be smart to have them both ready to go. The, the, the races these days, the Tour de France especially, very unpredictable. It's a really great idea to have two options for your GC leadership because as Chris Froome demonstrated this year's or the 2018 Tour de France, anything can happen. He crashed on the first day and that really set him back. So our uh, compatriot Dane, the aforementioned Dane who's not here, wrote a just just a flaming take oh, on Velenews brutal online yeah. right now uh, in the wake of this news bit saying that he's just he's just bummed out that so many of these GC honchos are opting to race the Giro uh, that would be Tom Dumoulin, Simon Yates, Vincenzo Nibali, and potentially Garrett Thomas and Miguel Angel Lopez, mind freak. Oh man, Mike Angel. Uh, but they're basically they're going to do the Giro instead of the Tour, and this bums him out because he wants to see Chris Froome really earned this fifth Tour de France. He wants him to go up against all the heavy hitters of the world tour, firing on on all cylinders. What do we make of this take? Totally agree with him because you think back to some of the Tours de France when the guy who won it was maybe three, four, five minutes ahead, and it was almost a foregone conclusion into the final week. We don't want to see that. We want to see a good battle, especially the Tour de France, especially if history is in the making. It's it's the biggest race of the season. Yes, we love the Giro. Very exciting race to watch. But uh, I think Dane made a great point as well in his column that the Giro is already exciting. It's going to be exciting. It always has been exciting. Doesn't need to get chock full of top contenders to have that unpredictability because of the weather, because the climbs are more punchy and steep and weird. And uh, also because you just get some very, very super motivated Italians, maybe from a pro continental team, maybe up and comers and they, they tend to stir the pot, and we like to see that. Yeah, the name on this list that really bumps me out is actually Simon Yates because he has now really ascended to the top, top, top list of climbers in the world tour. And with this Tour de France being a little light on the time trials and heavy on the climbs, I'd love to see him going up against Chris Froome, even if maybe the climbs don't, you know, these long grinder tour climbs don't suit him as well as some of the punchier stuff we've seen him excel on. I'd love to see the uh, Generation Next Simon Yates take on Chris Froome. I agree. And uh, let's not forget, Yates, he won the AP math equation that is the world tour last year. So he was having a great season. I expect more from him. And let's face it, this Tour de France is really well suited for him because it has very minimal time trialing. And Yates is just not, uh, he's not a, a time trial expert. Sure, Chris Froome is an all-rounder, a great climber, but Froome for sure will beat him in a time trial any day of the week. Mm, well... Too bad. We can get uh, Dane on here next week, and he can just like just go off on this. Yeah, just I'll have to gorge our ear. Turn down the volume for that one, man. Uh, next piece of news that we had on the site this week is that there is an apparent partnership between our good friends at Bahrain Merida or Bayron, as Andy Hood calls them, and uh, McLaren, the famed auto racing brand. Uh, this is be call, being called a game changer because McLaren is coming on board. Disruptive. Yeah. Oh, so disruptive. <laughs> oh, my gosh. To, um, you know, to help sponsor the team and bring technology and bring some of their, um, you know, their concepts that they use towards aerodynamics, et cetera, yada, 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 towards bike racing. We have a counterpiece, though, that says that this may not be as disruptive, game-changing a partnership as people may think. Spencer, what's going on there? Yeah, our friends at the Outer Line wrote this column up on Wednesday, and it, it provides some interesting insight to how McLaren is is structured or it functions as a company. Uh, definitely, there's you know there's some obvious points where uh, 
I've, you know, it's already been reported that the Bahrain Merida riders are, they're working in the wind tunnel that McLaren has in the UK. So, you know, there are some things like that underway, but the real point that I think the Outer Lions is trying to make is that when it comes to a new sponsor bringing money to the sport, this is maybe not exactly what you think it is because uh, McLaren, they have an own, their ownership is, is partly uh, with the Bahrainian family. And uh, so it's a bit of a shell game where the money's coming from a different source, apparently, but it actually, uh, it's still coming from Bahrain one way or the other. And the other interesting point they made was that looking back at uh, some of McLaren's financials, this company is not particularly healthy or large relative to what a real high-end world tour team needs to fund itself. Uh, I don't think you would expect to see McLaren step in as the sole title sponsor of Team Sky, for instance. I don't think they can afford a $40 million team. So when it comes to the financial side of it, they do have an interesting perspective, and I would recommend you guys all go give that a read. Uh, but uh, either way, they've got some really, really cool cars. Um, so you get some, hopefully get some cool photos of the riders with the Formula One cars. I will say, big missed opportunity when the team launched and they announced this partnership there was no formula one car on the stage come on guys that's that's marketing 101 think of the visuals it'd be awesome well especially put, put the bikes on the roof get a nice roof rack especially since in the press release they put out they bragged about the marketing potential the marketing experience that bahrain or that uh, mclaren brings to something like cycling it's yeah. like M- missed opportunity yeah marketing 101 put the big race car there with yeah. vincenzo nibbly yeah you have nibbly it. you have nibbly screaming up in this car, you, you have a big open auditorium with it road down the middle. He comes driving up and just sort of drifts it sideways into the front of the stage, pops out of it, and then they start playing some, I don't know, Euro pop dance music or some techno or something. Just get get everyone really hyped up. Or what about if Nibbly speeds up on his bicycle and mm. just as he's about to get off, a pit crew comes out with all of the guns and they like put on new wheels and they squirt some water in his mouth i like that then uh they push him and get him on his way that's great it'll be good if everyone switches over to disc brakes in the next season or so because those uh, mechanics will be able to really do the quick wheel change everyone's worried about it but the i think the mclaren mechanics are all over it all right yeah there's gonna be a guy with like a stopwatch in the corner yeah you got like oh it's just too slow it's 12 seconds come on come on (laughs) all right last piece of news well not the last piece of news but for the you know for this podcast we need to talk about this new ef education first team kit disruptive so disruptive they were the last world tour team to reveal their team they, kit. they always do this don't yep. they it's and kind of a smart see now this is a smart marketing yeah. move and it was it take was notes Bahrain marita done late in this it was done you know later than everyone else it was done after the first two weeks of the year where all the riders were wearing jet black Solid black kits a la Vino in 2009 or whatever it was. Ooh, yeah. problematic, problematic comparison. Yeah. <laughs> uh, just riding around looking like, you know, the rich banker guy on your group ride. And then all of a sudden, voila. Bam. They release images. They have launches at various Rafa stores around the world. And we get to see this kit. Spencer, how would you describe the kit? It's tough, tough to describe. It's it's very it's pink, but not all pink. It's uh-huh. got this purple splotchy thing that yeah. kind of blends into the pink. Uh, they, I think Rafa officially calls it oil slick, mm. which I yeah, I guess I see that. Um, it's it's very colorful, stands out. Personally, I'm a fan. I like that it's different. I like that it stands out. There's a lot of red kits in the in the peloton this yeah. season, and they're all just 
they're fine, but they're just kind of run of the mill and not, they don't really, uh, they're not much personality. I, I like that this one stands out. It's, it's kind of different, kind of fun. And uh, I will say, I saw it in person at the Rafa store here in Boulder. It does look better in person than it does in those photos. Some people were dragging it on the internet, you know, Twitter, of course, always has an opinion. Wait, people had negative opinions about something on Twitter? I know. It's usually so nice just mm. reading those happy tweets from yeah. people, just all in great moods, very complimentary, but not this time, no. I called it popsicle oil slick or mm. like melted popsicle. Popsicle, or yeah. maybe like highlighter, like highlighter fluid that got spilled. You know, it's very electric, very bright colors. Yeah. Um, no straight lines. I, that at first, so here's where I am with it. At first, mm-hmm. I didn't really like it. Now, several days later, it's grown on me. I like it. I think it's disrupt. <laughs> you know, the press release, of course, came with like 12 mentions of the word disruptive. Yeah. Um, it is a disruptive kit. There's no straight lines on it. You know, the uh, tradition that we see in bike race kits, racing stripes, straight lines, borders. Uh, This one, the you know, is like you just splashed paint down. I think also there's a bit of new kit syndrome happening here. And I think this happens every season when a team releases a new kit that's redesigned. I think the tendency everyone has is to be like, nah, it's not as good as the old one. And they're not accustomed to seeing it yet. And then I feel like you give it a week or two and you start to come around. I feel that way about the Sky Kit. That black to blue fade at first was kind of, to me, a little too dark. But seeing it on TV yesterday, watching stage one, tour down under, this looks pretty good to me. I like this guy, Kit, from from the get-go. So here's, I'm looking in my crystal ball, and this is the dynamic that I see happening. So in years past, what we've seen is some team reveals some outlandish new kit and with it takes about a year mm. for various masters teams across the country to start um, adopting slash bastardizing that design. We saw that with the uh, old uh, rock racing kit. Yes, and it was like all of a sudden there were these like masters teams with these really outlandish tribal like, tattoo looking things. Tribal tattoo kits are like uh, Toxic Avenger colors. Yeah, um, you know the the Argyle. I feel like oh, made yeah. its way into. And I saw a lot of. I remember seeing a lot of collegiate kits. That yes, Argyle. Yes, after very the much. Launch yep, I know of the that, initial you know Argyle. So now my question is like, how many just weird out there tie dye stoner like Grateful Dead style um, team kits are we going to see coming in the lieu in lieu of this uh, EF kit? I think it's kind of already happening, and I think maybe even some teams have beaten EF to this. I seem to recall there's a Chicago based team that has full on tie-dye yeah like like actual well i don't know if it's actually a tie-dyed garment but it looks like it and it's the whole rainbow of colors pretty pretty fun definitely stands out well keep an eye out for that uh masters and amateur and collegiate kits just going full grease stain oil spill uh whatever you call it popsicle melted popsicle Mm. with their kit designs yeah call it the valdez 2019 (laughs) speaking of ef we have a great interview with uh, with Mike Woods of Team EF. Andy Hood caught up with him at the Tour Down Under, and they talk about the race. They talk about his goals for 2019. They talk about is a wide ranging interview. So Spencer and I, I think we're just going to bid you all adieu, mm-hmm. and we will catch up with you next week. Enjoy, Mike Woods. Michael Woods, we are here in uh, the cool confines of the uh, Hilton. But man, it's hot outside, isn't it? Yeah, we're sheltered. AC's going full gas. It's one of the, the, the things about this race is you come here and you're melting outside, but at the buffet you're eating soup just because they got the AC cranked. 
I know. I'm almost catching a cold because of the AC. I mean, how does it work for you guys as, as riders? It has to be an issue, right? Uh, we're definitely rocking the new Rafa jumpers just to stay warm for sure. But uh, no, it's uh, it's it's essential just to being so hot outside. You, you don't want to uh, overheat, so you got to get back in the hotel and cool off a bit. I mean, you've had a wild ride the last couple of years, Michael. I mean, you came here, what, 2016? This was your first World Tour race. Looking back at how far you've come in those two seasons and, and, and uh, when you first came here in 2016, what were your expectations? I mean, you had just hit the World Tour. You came to the Tour Down Under. I think you got fifth that year, right? Yeah, JV and uh, Charlie Wigelius, uh, our head director, put a lot of faith in me for my first race in pegged me as the, the team leader uh, the first race I came to uh, which was this race Tour Down Under and uh, in retrospect knowing what I know now it's, uh, that was a crazy uh, crazy move like put, giving all giving that level of responsibility to a Neopro uh, but uh, my coach and I when we found out that I was going to be leading the team at this race uh, Paulo we, uh, Paulo and I put together his super hard schedule and uh, I've got a great sponsor called B210 that uh me up with some great training camps and they put together a big camp uh, where I went to Tucson. I stayed up in uh, Summerhaven at altitude and trained the house down and uh, came off that camp just flying and yeah, had this surreal experience on stage three. We went up the corkscrew. I don't know how I did it because I didn't have the skills at the time, but I managed to find myself sitting fifth wheel going into the base and when Richie poured attack, I, I followed and got this massive surge of adrenaline and just kind of channeled all of the times that I was sitting on the trainer watching Richie Port attack and ma- imagining myself trying to follow and I was able to follow and then come over top of him. Uh, I came over top and got away with Sergio Haynau. We went over the KOM and I was like the dog that caught the squirrel. I, I-, I was off the front. I-, I was leading this race and I had no idea what I should be doing. So I didn't commit to the move at all. I just, uh, I-, I-, I couldn't hear my-, my director at the time for Bridge on the radio. Uh, and so I kind of messed it up, but ended up sprinting for third on that day. And my wife, Ellie, was at the finish line, and uh, it was a pretty emotional moment. We hugged, we kissed, and it was this moment where we kind of realized uh, all the sacrifices that, well, I wouldn't say sacrifices, but all the risks we took in order to pursue this life were worth it. Because uh, up until then, you know, there were a lot of moments where I was lying in a on a hospital bed or a cot in some crappy place in Italy and thinking, what what the hell am I doing with my life? All right. <laughs> I'm sure every athlete has that crisis, but you came from a, an entirely different sport, had to almost start from zero again at a relatively older age yeah. as an athlete. So that's kind of that tension was there in that moment. Yeah, yeah, especially I started so late. I started at 25. A lot of people, you know, are well set in their ways from a career perspective. A lot of my peers, you know, especially when I was racing around 27, making nothing, you know, you see your friends already, you know, having mortgages and saving for retirement and thinking about having kids. And I was doing this ridiculous sport where I was risking life and limb in order to pursue maybe in the off chance of getting the attention of a world tour team and getting a big contract. Like the the odds were so slim and knowing what I know now is a crazy risk, but finally having finishing on the podium at a world tour race like this one uh, really kind of made me realize that it was all worth those risks. What was it inside? What was inside you that drove you to, to keep pursuing that dream? I mean, I know you had your world class running career kind of come to me. Was there something unfinished business to a degree? Or? Yeah, certainly. I started uh, running. My, when I was running, my whole goal was to make the Olympics, and I wanted to be an Olympian. And I was pegged as being this guy that was going to be an Olympian. And I 
invested myself so much in running that my entire identity was wrapped up in my performance as a runner. And when that started to fail, I felt like I was failing as a person. And it took me a while to get over that uh, concept. However, once I started cycling, I still had this attachment to, to my success being attached with making the Olympics. And so I, I got into cycling with this like mad drive that I had to prove myself as an athlete. I had to be an Olympian. Um, and yeah, it certainly helped a ton. But I was also really lucky in the sense that I had Ellie, my wife, who just told me to quit my job. She told me that I needed to be an athlete. She'd seen how well I'd ran in the past and said, you know, I, I need to keep on pursuing ath- uh, athletics and endurance sport. And then I was also really lucky to run into, uh, have parents that supported me a bit. And then run into a guy named Paulo Saldana, my, my current coach, who uh, took a risk on me and, and managed to convince a guy to, to help me uh, uh, help me out and give me some cash and uh, pay for my bills and pursue uh, cycling. I guess like I can imagine, you know, of course you'd have the engine, the natural engine to, to, to race, to make that transition. But man, how, how hard was it for you to, to the, the technical skills to race? I mean, to ride in a pack at the World Tour level, man, that's got to be a dicey proposition. Uh, significant huge huge uh, undertaking and when I first uh, I was completely ignorant to, to how hard that was as a runner I just thought okay I was one of the best runners in the world therefore I should be one of the best cyclists in the world completely uh, forgetting how technical the sport is how uh, nuanced it is from a tactics perspective as well um, and there's been a major learning curve I have a lot of scars to prove that you can look at my legs look at my arms I've got scars running up and down them and it's because I crashed a lot uh, it's something I still have to refine and work on. I just don't have those inherent skills that a guy like Peter Sagan has who started BMX when he was a little kid. Um, fortunately, I did a ton of sports as a kid, and that's enabled me to use the skills I learned from hockey and from downhill skiing and from other sports and uh, those, those skills that involve coordination, body position, and uh, cornering. I've been able to use some of them and transition them into cycling. And... Even uh, this off-season, I was working with a downhill, uh, a, a World Cup downhill, ex-World Cup downhill on my descending. Uh, just, I think it's something that I always need to refine. I'm always going to have to work at, but uh, especially in those early years, it was, it was a lot of work. Who was the skier? Uh, sorry, uh, mountain biker, oh, uh, downhill okay. mountain biker, uh, okay. Oscar Size. Worked, okay. He's worked with several uh, uh, teams. Um, one of my directors, Juan Manuel Grate, he got me in contact with Oscar because uh, he actually worked with Juanma when Juanma was on Rabobank, and Juanma spoke really highly of him. And uh, yeah, this offseason was great working with him. I felt like it made a huge difference. Because the, uh, I can imagine as a runner, they probably, your coaches probably said, don't even touch a bike. Did you actually ride a bike a lot earlier in your life, just, uh, you know, at any level? Yeah, a ton. I mean, my dad, like, not like, I never use it really as a source of exercise, but as a kid, I loved riding my bike. I'd ride to school every day, jump, like, build their jumps, jump them, you know, try and pop wheelies, all those things that you do as a kid. Uh, I was really active, and I loved riding, and uh I certainly, those the skills that I, I developed just through goofing around the bike uh, helped in the transition as well. It wasn't like I was, I, I hadn't ridden a bike before, you know, when I got on it. But uh, yeah, as a runner, your coaches are so risk adverse and runners are so one forward motion, one dimensional. Not that cyclists aren't in some ways, but yeah, they're, uh, they're so focused on this one discipline that you, you often forget that uh, uh, there are other sports out there and you need to actually be a bit of a well-rounded athlete in order to, to have really good success. Because, you know, you, you were so wrapped up in becoming a runner and an Olympian. When, when was the first time you ever thought about, maybe I can be a cyclist and go to the Tour de France? 
I watch the tour every summer, uh, particularly during the Lance era. Uh, when I was a runner, I'd, in the summer, I'd go for my morning run, come back, watch the finish of the tour, take a nap, and then go do a workout. And every time I was watching, I'd think, you know, I think I could do the tour. Like, completely ignorant to anything and, like, not knowing anything about the sport. I could do that, yeah. This guy's doing tour. <laughs> doesn't look that hard. I could do it. And, like, I think most people would have looked at me as crazy but my dad particularly my mom they both have instilled this crazy inner belief in me they're they're amazing parents and they taught me to dream big and i think a lot of other people would be too pessimistic they think ah that's not possible but yeah i'd sit there and be like i can do it so when you look back 2016 big year for you uh how, how what, what's the context now when you look back you know after the past season you just had can you is that was that a realistic expectation when you had a 2016? Yeah, in 2018, I'll finish second at Liège, best in Liège. I'll be on the world's podium, and I'll win a Welt España stage. Was that something you had envisioned three years ago? Not entirely. Um, I, w- I believed maybe I could pop a good result somewhere, but I think I even now have surpassed it, my initial expectations. That being said, I've had a lot of people believe in me, uh, JV being one of them. JV, when he signed me, said, you can win a classic. Mm. Like, you can win an Ardennes classic. Uh, and so I, I didn't know if that was possible when he said that, but, uh, yeah, it's been pretty special to come from thinking, you know, uh, it'd be nice if I could just be a domestique in the world tour to see myself as a guy who can't contend at these races. Uh, it's, it's been a fun transition. It's all, and also because I've, I feel like I've surpassed all my expectations, everything's just kind of icing on the cake now. Now, are you kind of, I mean, I know you've dabbled on the GC, you know, top 10 of the Welta. Um, you're obviously excelling at the one days. Is, are you kind of at a crossroads? I mean, do you still think you might have some grand tour potential or it's like you're all in for the, the one days? No, I, I think I love doing the one days. They're my favorite races. They're super fun. I like how you hit the reset button after everyone, uh, how they're challenging. You have to be just a really complete bike racer in order to do well with them. However, I don't think I'm done pursuing GCs. Um, I think especially at the, this past year out, but even at that Volta, I really felt like there's still room to improve and there's still an opportunity for me to achieve more in them. So I'm not writing GC off at all, uh, but I don't want... A, the pursuit of the GC to be at the detriment of performing well at a race like a Flesh or Liège or Amstel. I guess the good thing about those races you specialize in is that you can't still do the GC. It's not like Peter Saga on races Perry and he has to lose 10 kilos to race the Tour. Totally. They're not mutually exclusive at all. Look at uh, the guy who I was sprinting against in Liège was Roman Bardet who's finished second uh, at the Tour. Yeah, and I think I think just more, especially the Giro this past season, uh, I fell, I got sick, had some real respiratory health issues, at, uh, mainly because we now found out that, uh, have found out that I have uh, uh, pretty bad al- seasonal allergies. But I remember finishing that race even sick and just thinking, man, I, I know what I'm capable of and I'm capable of re- not just repeating a seventh at a Grand Tour, but improving on that. And so knowing that, I'm a huge believer in uh, progression and I'm huge, I want to keep, I'm only going to do the sport if I feel like I, I have more to give. And that has really made kind of added fuel to the fire and made me want to, you know, keep on pursuing the sport for five, six, six more years. So I can imagine now you've come close in the one days, you probably believe you're capable of winning them because the difference is you know, quite small. 
when you look at the Grand Tours, what's that difference between where you, you've been so far to actually thinking someday you could win a Grand Tour like against these guys, Chris Froome, and, and the guys that are winning the, the Vuelta and the Giro and the Tour? That's a massive step. The difference, like, I think with the one days, um, physiologically you have to be at 100%, but uh, there's so much uh, from a mental side where you can kind of, uh, if you play your cards right, if you're tactically adept, you can overcome several percentage points in ability. And so I, I'm physically strong and I, I, I feel like I've got a great engine, but uh, I also ride really efficiently in the group. It's one of my fortes. And um, that becomes more difficult to, uh, the, phys- the, phys- the gap physiologically becomes a bit harder to overcome in a Grand Tour just because uh, of particularly the time trial, which I'm very weak at, but also just the fact that it's just day in, day out. Uh, for me to say I can win a Grand Tour, I, like, I'm never going to say I can't do it, I can't win a Grand Tour, but it's pretty, it'd be a pretty hard thing to do. But I, I, could, I can see myself, if everything went right, um, going for a podium at one. Now, last year had to be, and I know for you personally, it was a, a year probably of extreme professional highs, but also personal lows. I think everyone that watched that interview that you gave after winning the Welta stage, there wasn't a dry eye in the house. I mean, how, how hard was that to perform at that level with what's happening with you and your personal life, with having with your with your family? I think it was a double-edged sword because because losing Hunter uh, motivated me like crazy. Uh, it gave me uh, a lot of perspective, and it made me realize that. Uh, like what what should be important in life and in that summer I trained my ass off afterwards because I wanted to do something so big like I just wanted to do something I I couldn't change anything and I just like I couldn't change anything I couldn't change the fact that we lost our son but I just wanted to try and do something positive and maybe turn something turn that into something positive um and what I mean by being a double-edged sword is I think that was really advantageous however I crashed a tour of Utah, and at Tour of Utah, I had hoped that was one of those things that I was going to do that was great. And when I crashed, it was devastating. Like, and mentally, I just felt like, man, I fucked up. And uh, I was depre- a bit depressed after just because of that crash, and I felt like I threw my chances of having success, which I did for my general classification, not just at, the, at Utah, but also at the Vuelta. Uh, and I was upset with myself. Uh, but fortunately, I had... Uh, a great director in Wama who kept me calm and he told me I don't care how bad you are coming into the Vuelta you're going to be great in that third week and that faith in me and him just kind of reassuring me just got to start regardless of how you feel uh, he's the guy who convinced me to start the, the Vuelta this year and uh, his patience and his, his, his level of calm and leadership enabled me to stay relaxed and then finally let that all that work that I did in the lead up to those races uh, come out and I had the best finale to my season to my uh, best finale to the season that I've had in my career is that a feeling that's going to continue obviously throughout the rest of your life obviously you just pour everything in to your bike and to your work for what happened yeah I think one of the Ellie and I my wife and I we we had a lot of like a lot of heart to hearts after uh, after Hunter's death we spent just a lot of time talking which I think was really important um, a lot of time crying and uh, but one of the things that we talked about most was like this should be a real message to a, a, a real 
rally, like a real message to just live our lives to the fullest. Because this this guy, uh, this little guy that we had, never really had a chance to live. And so it's it'd be foolish for us to not maximize every life experience that we have, uh, and just kind of li- as cliche as it sounds, live life to its fullest. And yeah, it's inspired me to you know ride my bike uh, as best I can. And, and maximize that. And, you know, if I'm having a bad day, just realize that I still get to have that day. You know, uh, it's, it's, it's certainly been a power. Uh, just looking ahead to this season, I mean, you had the high of, of, the, of the, the Canadian podium with the first one since Bauer, right? Yeah. I mean, how huge is that just for you to be part of that, have your name alongside his? Steve's, the, uh, without question, the best. I mean... Ryder might be able to challenge him, uh, but from a, just a, a, a Palmeiras, like you look at Steve's results, and he's—it's hard to say he's not the best cyclist in Canadian history. Uh, and uh, yeah, that the fact that I was able to replicate his result from '84 was something that was really special, and it was really cool because he was there. Uh, Steve's such a good guy. Uh, yeah, he was just just as happy for me as if is as if he he had medaled, uh, and it was really special having him there. It'd be nice if I can continue that 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 uh, momentum that I built off of the World Champs and uh, try and have more success at the Global Championships because I think of all the races aside from the Tour, uh, it's one of the best, even including the Tour, because Canadians really struggle in understanding the sport. It's not huge in Canada at all. Um, if I say I came third at Worlds, they think, oh, I'm the best third best cyclist in the world right uh, they don't like the Canadians don't a lot of Canadians don't understand cycling so if they see that they're gonna they're gonna get on board more mm-hmm. and I think to having success at the global championships is a great opportunity for me to showcase the sport in Canada and get more kids involved in the sport and I think that would be just a great legacy that I'd like to leave in the sport you have a couple of opportunities in the next couple of years. I mean, Yorkshire this year is probably pretty good for you. Yeah, and, and in Tokyo. Yorkshire's a good course. Uh, obviously, we it's a bit more of a sprinter's course, but I think with its, its length, it could favor me. It's also so far away, so it's hard to say how I'll do there. However, uh, Tokyo is... this. I got this big X on my calendar for that race. Like, that's... Uh, that's that's. I feel really lucky that they made a hard course again. Uh, I really, uh, I broke my femur in 2016, right before the the Rio Olympics, and I felt like that was such a missed opportunity. And I thought that was going to be my only opportunity to do well at the games. But uh, now with this course coming out, uh, I'm, I'm just yeah, chomping at the bit to, to race there. Just briefly for for uh, 2019, I can imagine the Ardennes is probably the first big major focus. Are you, is the tour on the horizon, Giro? What's the plan? At the moment, we've we're not doing. I'm not going to be doing the the Giro this year, predominantly for the allergy reasons. But also, uh, I told uh, the team that I really want to do the tour this year, and I told them I understand if, uh, like I, I said, I'll even get bottles. I'll be the bottle guy if, if I have to. I just want to do the tour. It's something I haven't done yet, uh, and it's certainly my uh, one of my big goals this year. Uh, but just with the nature of having Rigo on the team and also with having TJ, uh, you need to make sure that the roster is going to really uh, suit those two riders because they're such great uh, seasoned tour riders. So as long as I'm not conflicting with those goals and uh, the form goes, uh, hopefully you'll see me at the tour. What's the, what's the schedule look like anyway, just between here and going through the Ardennes? I find coming to Tour Down Under... Uh, to be, you have to be at your best if you want to contend here. So you have to train super hard before. 
if you don't take a break after the Australian calendar, uh, you're gonna have it's it's not sustainable to maintain that form all the way through to the Ardennes. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna, uh, I'm really happy we're here all the way until February. I get to uh, not just do down under in Cadells, but also Suntour. So it takes a bit of pressure off of just performing a one race. Uh, and also it means I can utilize the form that I have and then I'm going to take that take a break I'm going to take about a week off uh, and then start recharging the battery get ready for um, uh, a later later bit later start to the ra- season at races like Catalonia Pace Vasco and then yeah full gas for the Ardennes now the talk is you know the Liege course has changed it's no longer at the hilltop finish at Anz is down in uh, town is that going to be better or worse for you? Uh, certainly worse for me yeah. however uh, it's still such a hard, hard race and long race that anything can happen. You look when uh, Jungels launched and won, it wasn't on the final climb. He went, you know, 25k out. Uh, and I think, um, or 20k out, I believe. Uh, and I think, yeah, it's going to be it's going to be more difficult race to win. But the thing I like most about the Ardennes is that's not the only one. It is the monument, but there's also Flesh, which I really. It's a race I feel like I haven't maximized my potential at. And Amstel, I did Amstel for the first time this past season, and it was. I only came twentieth. I was in the second group, but I really felt like I didn't know the course at all when I did. And now that I have a much better sense of it, it's a race where I can excel at. So you're coming back to the Tour Under three years later now. Are you coming back to, to win this week, or is this part of just the build-up for something better? I think it's more uh, column B, build-up to something better. My form is good. Um, this race is so tight. From an, uh, it, it's a, a super competitive race. It's so tight from a talent perspective uh, and also from uh, a race differential perspective from a time when, when we're talking time because of the time bonuses, because of the shortness of the climbs. I could have, I could be on the best form of my life right now, but if the wind blows in the wrong way or uh, I eat something funky at the buffet, I'm going to come 30. Whereas, you know, if everything goes right, I think I can do quite well here. Um, but I just don't want to... It's so early to put low to yourself up with the level of pressure of trying to say, uh, I'm going to win this race. All right, Michael, thanks for the time. And uh, keep your, uh, your Rafa jersey on so you don't get catch a cold in this air conditioning. I'll do my best. Thanks. <laughs> All right, thanks a lot. Oh,